Pleasure to open up the Word of God with you, so keep your Bibles open. If you were just reading along with Jared, thank you, Jared, for reading that scripture for us. And also, if you have your bulletin in front of you, I want to point out that I do have an insert there for you. If you are the type that likes to follow along, at least I do, I I find that it's easier for me to engage and kind of stay focused when I have something to write down. If you enjoy taking notes or filling in the blanks, feel free to do that. Don't worry, I'm not collecting them at the end, so this is not a test. Only use it as you find it helpful, but you will be able to follow along using that outline for you, and I'll try and be clear when I have uh, something to fill in the blanks for you. We're going to be talking about this passage, Acts 2, and we're talking about a church on fire, and we're looking at this particular time in history when the church was just getting started and they were doing some amazing things, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to see some some things uh, to learn ourselves as a church uh, so that we can be on fire as well. And you know, when whenever there's somebody who stands up in front of a group as a motivational speaker, usually they say, you know, that uh, something to the effect of, uh, that it's a good idea to have uh, role models, people you, are, you look up to, people who excel in whatever field it is that, that you're trying to excel in. Because you can look at their example, you can see the ways they're ex- excelling, looking at their, their work ethic, their attitude, all these different things that they have going for them, their passion, and be inspired to follow after their, their footsteps whether that's in the business world, whether that's with music, trying to learn an instrument, whatever the case may be, um, if you have somebody like that in front of you, can inspire you. And that's kind of like what this passage is for us today. As we look at Acts chapter 2, I want us to be inspired to see what it was that made this particular church so great and to be motivated to follow in their footsteps. As I said, this describes a church on fire. And, and my goal is for this sermon to get you to say by the end, those Christians were amazing. How can we be more like them? And, uh, and the answer to that question is something we'll have to save to the end when we get to our application. But in order to get to that answer, we're going to have to study what these different parts mean and, and what it's talking about when it describes uh, these individuals meeting together. So let's go through this uh, in the outline form that I've given to you. And it's kind of going to be like, a, a, I guess, a springboard off of my last week's message. Last week we were talking about communion, and I was trying to think, what am I going to speak on today? And I thought, well, here's a reference to them breaking bread together, a reference to the early church taking communion, and we'll get to what that means in a little bit. And I thought, well, this would be a perfect springboard for it. Plus, I also owe a little bit to, to Charlie Bumgardner. He mentioned this passage as well when we welcomed our seventh graders in last Sunday evening, and he had referenced this passage kind of as an analogy to some of the things we do as a youth group. So I thought, what a perfect uh, passage for us to study this morning. I'm not going to try and repeat or or uh, outdo anything that Charlie did, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to study this together. So, uh, here we go. Let's look at this church on fire. What made them so great? Well, here comes your first blank. The first admirable uh, thing that we see here is that they devoted themselves to discipleship. Discipleship. Uh, And that's found in verse 42. It says that the believers here in Acts chapter 2 devoted themselves to four things. If you look down, you'll see that. They devoted themselves to four things, and that is the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And these things all occur together in one sentence, and I think they're intended to be viewed together. Why? Well, because they all are corporate activities, you could say. They're all things that you could do together. As you think of studying the Word of God and praying together and breaking bread together, of course, by nature is a group activity and 
fellowship. Of course, you can't have fellowship just by yourself, okay? So they're all corporate activities. And secondly, because they're all basic components in discipleship. So discipleship being your first blank. And that means they took being a disciple seriously. As you look at this early church, just after Peter had preached this amazing sermon to this crowd in Jerusalem, and it says 3,000 converts were added to their number that day. Here we're looking at the first church, the the first converts uh, after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit had come upon the disciples. And and here you find your, your first core group of individuals before all the structure and everything is going to be put into place in Acts. And so what do they do? When they have the first opportunity, they, they meet together. They follow these uh, key components of discipleship. And it comes organically. It's, it's what they want to do. It's what they desire to do together. And, and we see they have everything here essential to growing individually as a Christian and as a body of believers. In fact, some commentators even would go a step further and say that perhaps all four of these things were being done together in one particular meeting, and they would meet over and over again and include these things. Now, I don't know if we can, we can go that far. Uh, maybe that's true, maybe not. Um, but we can certainly see that a lot of these things are communal activities. And, and we would say that, uh, you know, at least to follow the apostles' teaching, they would have gathered in large groups, heard what the apostles were saying. They would have preached to this, this crowd of 3,000 or these large crowds. And then they'd come back together and, and share bread together and, and worship together. That's pretty neat. So let's look at these things one at a time. Okay, when we say they devoted themselves to discipleship, point A is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching, that's your blank. What was the content of this teaching? Well, we can say that it was at least the words of Peter's sermons in Acts. Um, you know, and, and as you look ahead, Acts 2 through, through chapter 4, some of the things they go on to teach. So it included some of those things. Um, In in other words, it would have been the content of the apostles' teaching. you got to remember at this time the Gospels weren't recorded yet. They weren't written down. So they didn't have an open Bible with with four Gospels in it to be able to study the words of Christ. A lot of this was being passed on orally. But they did have the, the apostles in their midst who could share everything that they had learned as they had walked with Jesus. And so they hung on every word of the apostles to teach them what it was that Jesus said and what he did during his earthly ministry. And they learned from it, and they absorbed it, and they loved it. But of course, uh, there's, there's more to this. Uh, there would have been the Old Testament as well, and they would have talked about how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies as Jesus had explained those things to the men on the road to Emmaus. And they would have talked about things such as um, theology of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Scripture, the life to come, uh, different things Jesus would have talked about, the law, money, marriage, parents, the heart, prayer, the devil, and so on. All these different topics that Jesus would have talked about, the apostles would have passed on to them. And... and uh, While the Gospels weren't written yet, as I said, these leaders did pass down what they knew of the teachings of Christ. Now, um, in Acts 2, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 46, if you just look a few verses ahead, it tells us that these believers met in their own homes for the breaking of bread together. And so, as I said before, commentators have also uh, been given reason to suspect that maybe these believers also conversed and studied these things in their homes as well. So they gathered together in groups large and small, and they devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching. That is worthwhile. Any mark of a Christian who is growing is somebody who loves the Word of God and wants to figure out how can I be more like Jesus and devotes themselves to it. And we find that here. Second word for your, for your blanks here is fellowship. Fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Uh, teaching of the apostles' fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer, verse 42 tells us. Now, the term that Luke uses—you <laughs> know what I was trying to say—Luke uses for fellowship in our text is much broader than our term in English. The word koinonia is the word behind it, and essentially, this word means joint participation, joint participation, or sharing something in common. It's it's thus a kind of partnership. In Philippians 2.1, the term is used of a common sharing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says this, If any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with His Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And in 1 Peter 4.13, it's used of sharing in Christ's sufferings. Sufferings. 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. So what it's saying here in Acts is that they participated in one another's lives. They devoted themselves to one another. They loved being together. They didn't just study Christ's words on their own and go to their own homes and just kind of stay to themselves, but they loved being with each other. And it doesn't just say that they were committed to fellowship as in just the idea of fellowship. They liked that idea. But rather, they were committed to the fellowship. You'll see there in English and in the Greek that there's the definite article, the. In other words, they were committed to the body. They were committed to this group known as the fellowship, um, the, the people involved in the fellowship. It's easy for us to talk about ideas and say, yeah, we enjoy fellowship. You know, we, we like this idea of the church. But when you get down to, to the specifics, are we committed to one another? Because that means the people in the fellowship. So the idea here is that we shouldn't just be committed to the church as an, as an idea, right? We, we enjoy going to church because I like hearing Pastor Reed preach, or I enjoy singing of the hymns, or I enjoy singing of the choruses, or I like praying together, or I like the program that we offer. I like that my teens can go to Teen Week or the kids can go to day camp. It can be easy for us to start thinking like that. Like, the, the, you know, the reason I like this church is because of the programs. But what it's saying here is that their love for the church went deeper than that. It wasn't just that they loved the programs. They loved the body. They loved the people. So my question I could turn around to you this morning is, do you love the people of this church or just the programs? Because if all of those other things were stripped away, if we lived in a day and age, for example, where Christianity was outlawed, Let's say it was even illegal for us to meet in this building. Let's say this building didn't exist anymore, and we had none of, none of those things. If we couldn't put on Teen Week, if we didn't have day camp, if we didn't have um, you know, all the things that we enjoy, and we could only meet together with individuals, with nothing else, would you still be just as committed? Uh, that's a question for us to ponder this morning. These individuals here are great. This church here that we're studying is great because they were committed to the body, to the individuals in the church, and they loved being with each other. Third thing that the believers devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Uh, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread. That's your third blank there, point C, and prayer. Now, the first question 
that's usually asked when you read that is, what does that mean? Breaking of bread. Is that a reference to um, sharing meals together, or is it a reference to sharing communion together? And commentators have kind of gone both ways on this. When you have this as a term, breaking of bread, it's interesting if you were to go through your Bibles and find all the, op- the, uh, the places uh, where that, that phrase is used. And as I've studied it this week, I, I take it to mean both, to be quite honest. Um, and I have some verses to back that up. If you look at Acts 2.46, we can go in the immediate context for this, for one thing. Verse 46, it's right there for you. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Okay, there's a reference right there of breaking of bread and food, which would take it, I would take that to mean very clearly, that's a meal. Okay, there is a meal taking place in their homes. Okay, so we we see it's at least that. But it also seems pretty clear to me that these meals included the Lord's Supper. So if you were to go to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 and 21, Paul is very clearly in that passage talking about communion. 1 Corinthians 11, 20 and 21 says, When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for one is eating, in eating one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then Paul goes on to repeat this formula that Christ gave, Uh, where he talks about what we talked about last week, this is my body, this is my blood, and so on. And so in 1 Corinthians, as I've just read for you, you saw that reference both to the Lord's Supper and to a meal. Because if you're just taking, you know, the Lord's Supper, imagine as we do, you know, with just a little bit of of the elements, one wouldn't go home, you know, hungry or filled or, or drunk or any of that. We can see just from all the words that are used, it was both. It was both. It was a meal, and it was celebrating the Lord's Supper after the meal that they did together. Paul says in verses 33 and 34, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Again, all in the context of the Lord's Supper, which we quote all the time when we celebrate together. The two went together. It was a meal, and it was the Lord's Supper together. So what does that mean? It means that when they met in their homes, they ate their meals together and celebrated communion, celebrated the Lord's Supper in the process. And, and there were many things that Jesus taught. Okay, We could say, well, they don't have all of the teachings of Christ because you know, they, they don't have the Gospels yet. But one thing that was clear to this group from the start was that they were supposed to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay, that was one of the predominant commands, as you just read the Gospels, that Jesus gave. One of the things that would have stuck out to the apostles. So as the apostles are teaching them, that's the one thing that they know they're supposed to do, and they do it. They do it faithfully. And it seems that it's something that they're doing daily. It, it wasn't until a little bit later in Acts that it kind of slowed down to a once-a-week kind of thing. But here they're so eager, they're just gathering in their homes, they're eating meals together, they're conversing, they're praying and they're sharing in the Lord's Supper together. What's interesting in this verse, as I've already referenced, is uh, that this is taking place uh, in their homes, um, doing so with glad and generous hearts. We saw that in verse 46. So um, as they celebrate this in their homes, as they take it with a meal, we just see that they are very faithful to the Lord's commands. Um, Next one we have is prayer. Verse 42 tells us the disciples were committed to prayer as well. Apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And this is key, um, because obviously prayer is one of the central activities that we could participate in individually and corporately as Christians. And if you think of any of the great individuals of Scripture, 
you find that they were examples of prayer. Think of Nehemiah, okay, whose book is filled with prayers. It's not just a narrative, but he pauses at certain points and thanks God or seeks God's help right from the start as he goes into the king and, and is about to ask a request from him. And the prayers are spaced throughout his book. You think of Daniel, who prayed three times a day regularly. He was a model of prayer. You think of David, whose entire book of Psalms is a book of prayers. So he modeled it, he lived it out, that was what he was about. And you think of Paul, who, of course, um, opened up a lot of his letters by saying, I remember you always in my prayers. He was a man of prayer. And, of course, our, our ultimate example we could think of in all of this is Jesus Christ, who took regular times to go off by himself in the midst of all of his busy demands to pray and to seek solitude to pray to his Father, and then also taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. So it's important for us to be devoted to prayer as well. And it's one thing for us to be devoted individually to prayer. Um, But also we see here that beyond that, they're devoted to prayer as a church. Again, it's surrounded by all these other verbs and actions that seem to be corporate activities. So I have to imagine that this prayer that's being spoken of is not just on their own. It included that, but also as they gathered together, they were devoted to prayer. And not just a few of them, the entire church. The entire church. So as as we take a step back, we've described our first major characteristic of this early church, the first way that we can look up to them, and that is they've devoted themselves to the most essential elements of discipleship. And uh, they did this through studying and teaching, um, the apostles' teachings, devoting themselves to fellowship by eating meals together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and praying together. Uh, There are other characteristics of of this group, and we'll move through them a little bit more quickly now as we go to point number two. The next admirable uh, characteristic of the early church was that they were in awe of everything God was doing in their midst. In awe, A-W-E, that's point two. This is immediately connected to the second half of the verse, what follows it. If you look down in your Bibles, Acts 2.43, it says, And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I have to imagine that those things are meant to be connected together, that they occur in the same verse. Because it's saying that they're in awe of everything that's happening. And at this time, the apostles are, are doing all sorts of amazing things. God is working amazing wonders through them. And and I believe those two are are meant to be connected. They're in awe of everything that they see. In addition to that, they're in awe of everything that they're they're being taught as they're sitting under the apostles' teachings. So it's both. It's it's all of these things that are just inspiring awe in them. In a broader sense, um, these believers were just excited about everything that was happening, not just the apostles, but also everything that was happening around them. 3,000 of them had just come to to believe in Christ in a single day. That would have produced a certain amount of awe in their hearts. And then they were just in awe of everything that was being told to them, everything that they were learning. This word awe is sometimes translated as fear, but not fear in in a bad sense. Fear in the sense of awe of God and, and holy reverence. These believers were on fire They were unique, not only because of what they did when they worshiped together, but in their hearts. They were emotionally moved. They were in awe of God. So a church on fire doesn't just um, only do things like 
in a rote fashion, okay? So you can check things off on a list, saying like, okay, I've read my Bible for today, I've prayed today, I've gone to worship today. Certainly those things are important, and if we stray away from any of those, it's, it's impossible for us to thrive without those activities. But a church on fire, an individual on fire, goes a step beyond that, is in an awe of everything that God is doing in their life. It affects us emotionally. It, it causes us to, to rejoice and worship inwardly when we are in that frame of mind as well. Next point, point three. They were generous with one another. Generous with one another. And we could look at two verses for this, Acts 2, 44 and 45, which say, And all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as each had need. That's pretty amazing. That's, that's worthy enough for us to just pause and, and just reflect on uh, what that would be like if we were that kind of Christian. Can you imagine um, what that would be like if we as a church were so devoted to each other that if we, if we knew of a need, we would sell our own things just to be able to meet that need? A lot of people are generous in this world. You can think of times where somebody has given you a gift you know, of the excess that they had and given you a gift of money for, to meet a need or, or just out of generosity for, for no reason at all. But it's going a step further to say that these individuals sold the things that they had in order to make up for the lack of others. That's truly remarkable. Something that you're not going to see throughout the rest of the New Testament. They were so on fire that, that this is just an immediate you know, knee-jerk reaction, something they want to do out of love for one another. They see somebody hurting, their hearts are so moved that that's what happens. Um, and the text, I think, is clearly making this as a positive example, something that we should be in awe of ourselves, something we can look up to. It's the purest example of individuals living up to Jesus' teaching in Matthew six nineteen, where he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's the purest example of Christians living out the command, love your neighbor as yourself. And just imagine if we lived like that, if we were so devoted to each other that we were actually willing to sell the excess of what we had to meet the needs of others. And you might say, well, how could, how could we ever get that way? It seems so foreign, so difficult. And you're right. It's nothing that we could enforce as a church. It's nothing that we could legislate. It's only something that would happen if our hearts were so moved with love for the gospel and for one another that God moved us to do it. But this church did, and it showed us how much they loved each other. Next point, point four, they enjoyed being together. Enjoyed being together. Acts 2.46 says, And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And when it says glad and generous hearts, that word for generous is only found here in the New Testament. Um, so it's difficult to translate, to be honest. Uh, but I think the NIV and the NAS do a, a better job of translating it this way. And if you have an NIV or an NAS with you, you'll see what I mean. They ate together, it says, in the NIV and the NAS, with glad and sincere hearts. Sincere hearts. I, I like that translation better. And again, it's so hard for translators in general, when you have a word that only appears once, to know what it's saying in the context. But I think what it's meaning here is, in other words, they loved being together. It wasn't forced. It was sincere. 
They didn't just go to the temple and then go home. They wanted to be together. They even met together in other homes, in their own homes. So they weren't content just to go to temple and, and see each other there, worship together, share stories, pray for one another, hear the apostles' teaching. They wanted more of it. They wanted to be together as often as possible. <clears throat> Again, it, it just shows a, a bit of what we were talking about before, being committed to one another, not the church as an idea, but to each other, loving each other out of a, of a glad and sincere heart. Next point is that they were thankful, thankful. That's number five. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That's the key part. Praising God and having favor with all the people. This shows at least three things to me. First, they recognized God as the one who brought about such growth. Okay? So they recognized that it was, it was God who had caused those 3,000 individuals to be saved, and they were praising Him for it. Second, in contrast to praising God, we could say the opposite, that they weren't grumbling. Okay, That's the opposite of praising. Okay, Rather than being critical and just you know, backbiting and being you know, uh, disappointed and angry and upset, they were praising. They were choosing to have a, an attitude of thankfulness. And third, third thing we could recognize is that the praise that's being spoken of is more than just in song. You see, we praise God in song all of the time, but what's being spoken of here is spontaneous praise, praise that's emerging out of their hearts, praise for just their everyday situations. You know, I don't know if you've ever just sat around the dinner table and just looked around and just noticed your your family or your home or your friends or whatever and just been moved to just say out loud, life is amazing. God has blessed me with so much. I'm just so thankful for what I'm enjoying right here. Or just been outside in a beautiful day and just randomly praise God for the beautiful days provided or for the situation you found yourself in. You know, we can be motivated just spontaneously without even expecting it, you know, to, to praise God in those times. And that's the kind of praise that's originating from these believers. They are spontaneously being moved to praise God and just rejoice at everything that's happening around them to be a thankful people. And when you walk into a church that's characterized by thankfulness, by people praising God, then you know you're in the midst of a church on fire. That's what we, we have an opportunity to peer into uh, this morning. Next point, point six, they had a powerful testimony. Testimony. Acts 2.47 says, Praising God and having favor with all of the people. So the word people here is referencing people outside of the church, I think. I, I think that's referencing those who aren't a part of, of this particular body. They're receiving favor from the outside world. And we see here because of their testimony, because they were a thankful people, as we just talked about, a joyful people, a people who are committed to each other, and a, a sincere people, then the people on the outside respected them. And even those who didn't believe saw something different in this body, and they admired them. And you know what? Even in times of persecution, even when the church becomes despised by society as a whole, it's still possible to maintain a witness. Even when the culture is hostile, it's possible for Christians to be respected if you live a sincere life, uh, one characterized by thankfulness, one characterized by prayer and devotion to the Word of God. 
Sometimes it's just our consistency, our attitudes that we display to our neighbors around us, our love that's demonstrated to them through our acts of kindness that cause people to turn their heads. Even if this world, again, were to go totally against Christianity and say, you know what, Christians are just a bunch of you know, narrow-minded people in the world, just you know, forget about them. Don't despair in thinking that the world has totally just turned their back and there's nothing we can do. It's showing here, even in the midst of a Roman world that would be filled with persecution, it says people respected them. They found favor in the eyes of those around them. Why? Not just from their words. I think it's interesting that the words they spoke are absent from this passage. And certainly if they were going to share the gospel, they needed to share words. They needed to tell others about who Jesus is. But the evidence that we're given here is the lives and the attitude that they had. And if we have those kinds of things, we can be a light to those around us as well. That's a church on fire. Last one that I have for you, and then you're done, then you can rest your hand a little bit. They were multiplying. They were multiplying. Acts 2.47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. A church that's on fire is naturally multiplying. They go hand in hand because of the positive testimony that the church has in the community and because its members care about their faith and are willing to share the gospel. Here we see that the church was functioning to its fullest degree and God blessed them for it. They were living out the faith that they proclaimed and we can imagine just as the apostles were sharing this good news of Jesus dying in their place that they were sharing the same good news with those around them, and they were multiplying. So what is the first church of Acts like? We've answered that question. You have it now before you. Uh, And now how should we look at this text? How do we apply what it is that we've just read? Well, for starters, before we jump too much into the positive examples, I have seen cases where people have taken this text a little bit too far, And it's good for us to pull us back a little bit just so we keep everything in perspective. We shouldn't see this church as being absolutely perfect. For all the good things that we just went over, they weren't exactly perfect. They were early on. This is the church in its fullest innocence. And there were a lot of things that weren't yet developed yet. So if you were to just strictly take this and say, okay, Acts chapter 2, that's the perfect church. Let's try to be like that. It wouldn't be seeing the whole picture because there's many other things that happen in Acts that help it to develop and grow. For example, elders have not yet been set up, okay? And so if we were just to look at Acts chapter 2, you wouldn't see any model of leadership yet, aside from the apostles. But as God guides the church and hands down commands to us, we see that Paul will set up elders in every church, and he'll give us, in his later letters, instructions as to what those elders are to be like. We'll see later on that deacons are also established as... as, uh, uh, Philip becomes one of, the, one of the first deacons, as later on in Acts, there are some disputes that arise out of the distribution of food. So that's not yet in place. A, a system of church discipline hadn't yet been put in place either, again, because they just had gotten started. But later on, we'll see instructions as to how all that can, can take place. And so when we look at this, I just want you to keep that in mind. It's not the whole picture. Things will develop later on to help round the church out. But with that being said... I do think we're supposed to look at Acts 2 as an example that's to be praised and that we should seek to emulate. I'm not so much talking about our programs this morning. What I'm really talking about is our attitude. 
Because what's tempting for us to do is look at this outline and go back through this point by point and say, oh yeah, we, we've, we do that. You know, the, the temptation would be for us to say, this is a church on fire. We want to be a church on fire. Let's see what they did. And you can say, okay, yeah, I can see where we do that. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching and all that. And that may be true. We, we very well might be covering all of our bases here. <clears throat> but what I want you to see this morning is not all of the ways that we are the same as those in Acts 2, but all of the ways that they challenge us to be a church in an even greater way. For those believers, not only listed, I'm sorry, listened to the apostles' teaching. They, don't, they, they didn't just listen to the apostles' teaching, but it says they devoted themselves to it. They not only met together, but they looked forward to being together. They met in the temple. They met in their homes. They shared with one another. They broke bread together. They prayed for one another. They praised God together, gathered together, not in a programmed way, but in an organic one. They were sincere about what they believed, and they led others to Christ, and they grew. We should always be looking for ways as a church to try and capture what it was that made the Acts 2 church great. The highest goal that we could have for ourselves is that it could be spoken of us in these same ways, that we are, one, a church devoted to the teachings of the Bible, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread together in prayer, two, that, a church, that our church is filled with awe and worship of God, Three, that we are a church that cares about the needs for one another. Four, a church that loves to be together both within these walls and without, even in our own homes. Five, a church that is thankful. Six, a church that has a strong testimony in our community. And seven, a church that multiplies. May those things be said of us. May those things be said of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray this morning as we look at this church found in Acts chapter 2 that your spirit would accomplish all of these things that we've just read about. God, what we, we need is not just a transformation of, of programming, of things that we do externally, but we need a transformation of our hearts. And God, we desire to be a witness in this community, to be a witness in Lebanon to the lost people who surround us, God, there are many people out there who do not know you as Lord and Savior as Lord and Savior, and are lost. God, so many people, such a large percentage of our community is lost without hope, without knowing what it means to be forgiven of their sins entirely, knowing for sure that they can have a relationship with you and be forgiven and be in your kingdom forever and ever after this life is over. God, we have so much to share. God, help us to bear these characteristics ourselves as we look back on this church. Help us to care about one another, to be devoted to the Word of God, to, to, to prayer, to communion, to being thankful and being in awe of all that you are doing in our midst. So by your Spirit, help us to be that church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.